We are in Matthew chapter 1. But really for a starting place for each of the three sermons in this short series, we're calling Christmas Hope. Christmas Hope. So we begin really in the same place we began last week, saying Christmas is a story of hope. We sang today, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, who was Israel's strength and consolation, the hope of all the earth. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every heart. And why is Jesus the hope of the earth? Well, we also sang, Scripture say that Mary's boy was born that he might die. We can have hope at Christmas because Jesus was born, but born specifically to die. To die as a substitute sacrifice. To fulfill all those Old Testament pictures of lambs slaughtered on behalf of guilty sinners. He would die for our sin that we by his stripes might be healed. Saved. Christmas hope. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Joseph has heard from the angel that his wife-to-be was expecting a child miraculously conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit in her. Verse 20 says, as he considered these things... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Last week, we examined the first reason for Christmas hope, that being God keeps his promises. We went all the way back to the very first promise in the Garden of Eden, where in the language of God's pronouncement of a curse, on the serpent and on the man and on the woman, we have tucked away in there what was called the first gospel, the proto-evangel. Where was the good news first heard? It was there in the language of that curse, where God said he would create friction in this work that was being done by the devil, that we would not always be his captives, his slaves but that he would provide a remedy for this sin ruin. God keeps his promises. So ultimately, we have Christmas because God is faithful. Oh, there are huge secondary reasons, things like the salvation of sinners. But Christmas is first and foremost the reality of God's faithfulness. Because of God's character, there is Christmas. He keeps his promises. He sent a son. 
And that son would be our savior. And that's the second reason for our hope that we studied this morning. Yes, God keeps his promises, but that unfolds further hope that God saves his people. God saves his people. That's no new revelation to us. But what we can do this morning is trace the development of hope in this theme, God saves his people. And we begin the Christmas story of hope with the realization that we are sinners. We meaning all humanity. We meaning when we step back and look at God creating the heavens and the earth and the the heavens and all the stars and an earth mass with all of its seas and land. Then he created all the plants and all the animals and all the birds. And then he creates man and woman. And now creation as we know it, the universe is made. John 1 says that was all by God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All that being made, we now recognize the difference between the creator and the creation, or the creator and the creature. Humanity represented by Adam and Eve in the garden. That's where the Bible story begins. But in that Garden of Eden, in sinless perfection, Adam represented all humanity to come. And as our representative, he failed to keep the command that God had given. And his failure became the failure of all humanity because of his representative nature as that first human there in the garden. You can read Romans chapter 5 to understand why I was born a sinner though I wasn't in the garden and though I didn't seem to choose to eat any fruit in violation of God's command. But Paul helps us understand there that the representative nature of Adam and Eve in the garden, specifically Adam, means that he acted for us or more personally in him I acted. I chose rebellion. But if I'm to flesh that out, it would mean I chose rebellion in Adam. Paul simply lays out the truth that you would have done the same thing. Adam's sin in the garden has become your sin. His failure, your failure. His consequence, your consequence. And so the argument of Romans 5 ends with, so death, which is the payment for sin, what God said would happen if they sinned, death passed on all men because all sinned. That's important, that representative nature of Adam in the Garden of Eden. But for now, just know that means you and I were born in sin. Oh, we then acted out in that sinfulness. We've committed many sins, But we were first a sinner, born that way, because we in Adam sinned. Now, born ourselves as humans, we acted on that sin nature and have obviously broken many of God's laws. 
from Genesis 2 and 3, from that first understanding of sin, the transgression, the breaking of God's law, we learn what it means to be sinners. First, from Adam and Eve and from the rest of humanity, we understand sinners to mean this. We have rejected the rule of God. It was real simple in the garden. Enjoy everything God had made, but don't eat of the tree of this, uh, the fruit of the one tree. One command, one boundary, one rule. But it was too much for Adam and Eve. They rejected the rule of God. Thus, they were rebels. You see, oftentimes in the sharing of the gospel, you will encounter people who they, they recognize bad people when they see them. And they'll bring up Hitler or some other figure in history that clearly there is universal agreement to his badness. But they will say things like, but, but I'm not like that. I've never done that kind of stuff. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that you have. The Bible doesn't compare the worst of sins and say, okay, well, that's bad. No, the Bible simply defines breaking God's law and says, when you do that, you become one who has thrown off the rule of God and you are a rebel against God. But if you tell people you need to be saved because you are a rebel against God, they're going to argue with you. They will say they're not. Oh, they'll say, I might have made some mistakes, but I'm, a, I'm basically a good person. I'm not rebelling against God. I think the world needs more of him, and, and they should do better. But they're missing the original drama of the Bible in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in the garden. They're not understanding that rebellion is revealed both in flamboyant acts of evil and also in quiet acts of self-righteousness. The Hitlers of the world, they're our poster child for flamboyant evil or pick someone in the culture who's living in some lascivious lifestyle and immoral and casting off all definitions of marriage and gender and any boundary at all. Okay, there's your flamboyant act of evil, clearly rebellion against God. But then you take this coat and tie Pharisee of Jesus' day who kept all the, the written laws religiously, meticulously, but it was done apart from recognizing the righteousness that only God can give through Jesus Christ. It was a righteousness they were trying to build up on their own so that they could say, I am good enough. But the prophet said that kind of self-righteousness is counted as filthy rags in an argument to God. It's worth nothing. It's the same rebellion. It's still saying, I'll do it my way. Okay, so I've done some bad things. I'll fix it. I'll be good enough. If we miss this understanding of our sin nature at its core being rebellion against God, then we might be stumped by unbelievers who are really good people. By that we mean really generous, really kind, real hospitable, 
unbelievers that you know that would give you the shirt off their back. If you were destitute, they'd give you a room in their house. We know nice people, good people by a human definition, but not perfectly righteous and holy by God's definition. We must understand that we are sinners, which means we are rebels. We have taken up arms against God. And secondly, we have earned the wages of sin. Because we chose in Adam to sin and because we have fleshed out our sin nature in acts of disobedience, what God promised in Genesis 2 to Adam, that if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die, was proven true. And Paul would argue so after unfolding Romans Five, Adam representing us in the garden. We've all sinned in Adam. The sentence of death is on all of us. He reasons through that through chapter six and concludes, you know this, the wages of sin is death. You have logged the hours and now it's time for the payment. And the payment you have earned for rebellion against God is death. The wages of sin is death. And so sinners are under the sentence of eternal death. Merry Christmas. It really is part of the story, right? It fits. It makes sense. If there's going to be this wonderful good news, it's because when you look around, there's a lot of bad news. We see the effects of sin everywhere around us. And we're right to address it so that people know what all that babe in a manger stuff is about. We're sinners under this sentence of God's wrath because we've fallen short of his standard of perfection. We've cast off his rule when he said don't, we did. And now we're going about trying to make ourselves look good as individuals, as families, as cultures as nations and empires, we're trying to say humanity is it. We can be something. And the great religion of humanism is the answer that the world has given to God's answer of Jesus. Jesus can lift you up. He will exalt you, as Zephaniah said. God will exalt over you. He can make you what you need to be. Humanism says you'll have to make yourself what you need to be and climb over anybody to get there. So sinful humanity is in this state of rebellion and under the sentence of death. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. When you put it poetically, it doesn't sound so bad. When you get right down to the doctrine of man, you realize they're in rebellion against God and under the sentence of death. Point number two, then, becomes abundantly clear. We need to be rescued. For you English students out there, you see that that's passive. It's not an active verb. You need to rescue. It's passive. You need to be rescued. You can't do this... For yourself, there's no course of action spelled out for the sinner to make themselves right with God. 
In Genesis 3, we didn't see Adam and Eve driven from the garden and handed a, a road map on how to get back to the garden. Here's what you need to do. Quite the contrary. Just an angel there with a flaming sword as a reminder. There, there is no coming back. That, that's, that's the sticking point in understanding the sovereignty of God and salvation. You see, we have to understand there is no sinner coming back to God on their own. There's an angel there with a flaming sword. You're, you're not coming back. There's nothing you can do. There's no self-rescue. No reparations can be made. No good works or community service. There's no plea bargaining, no fines to be paid, no settling out of court for an undisclosed amount. There's nothing you can do. Adam and Eve walked away from the garden with nothing that they could do to walk back into fellowship with God. We need to be rescued because sin ruins. We cannot save ourselves. But what is this rescue all about? Understand first, we need to be rescued from the future consequences of sin. This is how we often think of salvation. We're going to be saved from the wrath to come, and we're right to think that way. Eternal judgment awaits every sinner. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, Hebrew says, judgment. The death of our physical body. The person hasn't died. Our person will face our Creator. God, and he will judge, meaning he will declare what is true and right and just, and that would be for sinners that they be separated from the joyous glory of God and only know forever the glorious wrath of God. Death is indeed a separation from God, but it's the separation from the wonder and blessing and joy of God but we will forever know, or they will forever know, the wrath of God, the enormous trauma of his holiness that they had violated in eternal judgment. We need to be rescued from that. That's what looms over the life of every sinner, that judgment to come. But as Hebrews says, it's appointed unto men once to die. It's coming. And what comes after that is future judgment. And we need to be rescued from that. Eternity hangs in the balance. And that balance in your life is, is right there before you today. Have I put my faith in Jesus so that I will be sheltered from future condemnation? Because Paul argues in Romans, if your faith is in Jesus, there is no condemnation for you in that day of judgment. You won't be condemned. After all, you've received the righteousness of Christ. You'll show your report card and it will be A pluses. I kept the law. And you'll hold it up, hopefully, in faith. But you will know 
It is not your record. It is the record of Jesus Christ. But that's how Paul can say, in that day, you will not have condemnation because you are hidden in Christ by faith. But apart from that, you face only the judgment of God. And so the obvious question when, when thinking about rescue is, have you been rescued? Is Jesus your savior? Is he your boast? Will you stand before God saying, I claim the righteousness of Christ because I don't have any of my own. But we also need to be saved from the present consequences of sin. We began walking down this path in the equip hour studying how it is that we're ransomed from our unrighteous, futile ways inherited by our fathers and were ransomed to a life of holiness, righteousness. You see, the present consequences of sin were what Adam and Eve immediately began to experience when they left the garden. It was the emptiness of life, or we could say the futility the fact that they would work and work and invest and pour out and get so little in return, or at least through so much trouble, so that by the end of a struggling existence, we would be eagerly longing for something better. Some of you know what it is to live 50, 60, 70 years. And you know when you're 13, you actually think thoughts like, I don't want the Lord to come back. Christmas is only a week away. I want to see what I get. Or, you know, I want to get married. Or I want to know what it's like to have a family. Or, and, and we actually kind of want to enjoy things. And then you kind of get older and you're like, you know, you're like, there's just not much to this world after all. I, there, there must be something to that promise that heaven's even better than this. And suddenly, that talk of heaven's shore... Sounds a little bit like a vacation at the beach, getting away from your problems. And it is. We groan in this life. And it's only by the abundance of God's kindness that maybe you don't groan as much as someone else. But the reality is, apart from Christ, especially, this world will have a futility and an emptiness to it that we need to be rescued from. But it's not just a futility and an emptiness. There's another problem in the present consequence of sin, and that's that we're on this broad way that leads to destruction, ultimate destruction, but it is a way of destruction. When we study the Proverbs and build onto that with the New Testament language, we realize the the way of the unrighteous is not only headed for ruin, but it is a path of ruin. So we need to be rescued from the emptiness and self-destruction of living as the enemy of God. You'll see this even in the Christmas season. The endless yet unsatisfying pursuit of money, of of nostalgic family gatherings of pleasure. We see in our culture the, the, the constant grasping for power. 
It's everywhere we turn. Because what else do you have except self-rescue apart from Jesus Christ? Not everyone pursues power, pleasure, money, comfort in the same way or to the same level. But in every individual heart, in every relationship, in every culture, what we see is the pursuit of self-satisfaction in some way. It could be in quiet retirement years for some. It could be in the invading of other nations in other ways. But it's living out the purpose of their religion, humanism. I have to better self because then this life is over. Jesus offers something more. He offers something satisfying and eternal instead of self-destructive and temporary and futile. Christmas is an echo of so many Old Testament stories that show us that God is a God who rescues from enemies, from floods, from giants, from lions' dens, from captivities in foreign lands, from sin, and from ourselves. So man is sinful, he cannot save himself. And he stumbles through this life in futility because of the darkness of unbelief. Romans 1 would paint that picture for us. That's all the bad news. But Christmas is a story of hope. As Isaiah told us, we heard earlier, the people who walked in darkness, in futility, in self-destruction, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. John 1 draws the analogy of light coming into the world. Oh, in Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. And there was light. But in John 1, God said, let there be light. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he was the light and life of men. John's making it clear how God rescues his people, and it's through Jesus. You see, the story of hope has a name, and it's not just Christmas. It's Jesus. That's how God rescues. Jesus. And so the angel tells Joseph, this son that will be yours, Call his name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. Call him Jehovah is salvation. That's a fitting name. It was a fitting name for Joshua, the servant of Moses, who would lead his people into the promised land and help them inherit what God had promised them. And it's a fitting name for this Joshua, who would lead his people from the wandering in the darkness but he would shine the light on them so that they would know how to find their way home to the inheritance God has for them. God rescues his people through Jesus, and his name means God saves. That's why we have hope at Christmas. God keeps his promises, and God saves his people. And we know that because he named the rescuer. I will save my people. 
Call his name Jesus. Remember in the Garden of Eden, in sinless perfection, Adam represented humanity, and as our representative, he failed to keep God's law. However, in the incarnation, in sinless perfection, Jesus, as the second Adam, represented humanity. And as our representative, he succeeded in keeping God's law. So God saves his people through Jesus by providing to them righteousness and forgiveness that we desperately need to be reconciled to God. And so Wesley wrote, Adam's likeness now efface. It's an old word that means erase. Adam's likeness now erase. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. The old Adam failed, but the second Adam came to accomplish what the old Adam failed to do. Keep God's law and delight in him. And he came to, as Wesley would say, reinstate us. But that would come at the cost of a sacrifice. The sacrifice of himself. And so it's through Jesus, the one we call the second Adam, second representative, that God mercifully saves sinners who repent and believe. But notice there's one other name given to this, to this rescuing one, and it's Emmanuel. Verse 23, quoting the prophets, promise that this virgin would conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. In the Hebrew, El is the name for God, and the, the I, Emmanuel, before that is simply that prepositional language of with us. So if you translate right from the Hebrew, Emmanuel is spelled with an I. If you go through the Greek New Testament, it's spelled with an E in the way the words come to us. So if you see it I or E, they're both right. It's just really a translation kind of an issue. Question. Call him Emmanuel, which means, in case you don't know Hebrew, God with us. God with us. This means more than just being present, like grandma was at Christmas last year, but she just sat in the chair, like she didn't even get up. You know, you brought a plate of food to her, perhaps, and, you know, she didn't join in all the reindeer games or anything. She was just there. That, that's not what the text is saying, like God is, just happens to be here. Remember, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. That's not what it means. It means what we affirmed earlier from Luke chapter 1, what Zechariah understood, that God has visited us is the language he used. But that visit isn't just like, oh, I kind of stopped by, see how you're doing. No, it's, it's like General MacArthur saying, I shall return. It's like, I'm coming back for a visit. But that meant something more than just casually wandering in. It meant with purpose. God has visited us savingly. He came to accomplish something. That's what with us means. 
He came to rescue. He was keeping his promise to remedy sin, and he would do so actively and presently. He would do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So Jesus would say, I have come to seek and to save the lost. I am a rescuer, he said. Jesus came as God in human flesh. But unlike Genesis 3, this time we wouldn't hide in shame. This time he would take our sin and our shame. And he would bear it all the way through to the end, to the consequence of death on a cross. He would suffer its penalty so that we could be counted righteous, so that we could be granted forgiveness, and so that we could be raised to everlasting life. Christmas hope. God keeps his promise. But that unfolds in God saves his people because they were sinful. They needed to be rescued. But God would come among us in the person of Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He would rescue. Jesus saves. Every celebration of Christmas, if it's true Christmas, is the celebration of the name Jesus. Our God dwelt among us to save us. Christmas is indeed the story of hope. And our hope rests in the promise of God to mercifully save us through Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words to us that tell a story. A story of promises kept. A story of salvation brought. Would you help us to hear this story and to be a people who repent of sin and believe in Jesus today and tomorrow and the next day until we see him face to face. Walk us through this Christmas season with fresh understanding of the depths of your love in giving us your son. And walk us through this season with a fresh experience of the joy in living our lives for that son. Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.